you have your Bibles, I'd invite you to turn to Mark uh, chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, verses 1 through 13. Uh, just to help us understand uh, verses 9 through 13, there's this conversation around Elijah. And Jesus seems to think that the Elijah prophesied in Scripture has indeed come. And uh, Jesus is speaking about, Eli uh, speaking about John the Baptist. So there's a prophecy in the Old Testament in the book of Malachi that John the Baptist, I mean, Elijah would come before the great day of the Lord. And Jesus actually says, no, that's been fulfilled. John the Baptist came before me and they did what they will to him. And what he, what he wants to do is draw the disciples' attention to the fact that the one uh, who was talked about in the Old Testament, about his great day, his great character, his great person, that's in him. And he, he's here now. So Mark chapter 9. And Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, and he led them up a high mountain by themselves, and he was transfigured before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. For he did know what to say, for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them, and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. And suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to tell no one what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And here he's talking about John the Baptist. And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the Son of Man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come, and they did to him whatever they please, as it is written of him. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we turn our hearts to your word and pray that uh, the word that we hear read and now proclaimed will be used by you to save and to sanctify. Would you help us, Lord, to see more of Jesus here? Would you help us to walk away from here this morning having met and had an encounter with the living God through his word and by the Spirit? And Holy Spirit, would you guard my heart and guard my words? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable and pleasing in thy sight. Oh, Father, would you do this, we pray for Jesus' sake. Amen. It's one of my favorite times of the year, and uh, it's the fall, and we're getting ready to get into football season. And I'm just not saying this just because we have a football team here. I, I really do love football uh, on multiple levels. It can be college or NFL, you name it, I, I enjoy watching it. Uh, but if you've watched football for any amount of time, then you know that there are some moments when you watch the sport and you realize just how dangerous it can be. And so you've probably watched the game and you've seen a wide receiver running a route 
and the quarterback kind of threads the needle and, and hits him when he's open. And it looks as if he's about to make the catch. And all of a sudden, there's a safety or a cornerback who's right there. And there's this massive collision on the field. And all of a sudden, the two men fall. The defensive player gets up, but the receiver stays down. And all of a sudden, you can hear a pin drop in the stadium. The players are afraid because they've seen this guy take a hit before, but for some reason, he's not moving. And all of a sudden, this player uh, happens to have a family, and they're watching from home, and now they're worried about dad. And, and the medics come to the field, and the players start to take a knee, and they start to pray. Uh, all of this is going on because we're thinking the worst, that maybe this player will never walk again, let alone play football. And the medical staff gets him, and they put him on a card, and they make sure not to move him too much so as to not further the injury. And they put him on the cart, and they are carting him off. And as he gets to the tunnel, the player does this. He puts his hands out, and he gives a thumbs up. It's a glimpse. And at that moment, the, stand, the, the, the crowd stand to their feet. There's a sigh of relief. And he's not out of the neck of the woods. I mean, it still a, it looks like an injury. But that glimpse... That glimpse right there, that little thing of a thumbs up, that all of a sudden it, it, it takes this team that were, that were grieving and hurting and thinking the worst, all of a sudden, just with a glimpse of seeing that little thing, that it, it brings a sense of calm and peace over the team and the stands. Uh, do you believe that in the midst of some of the most terrifying and terrible news that you could hear that something so small as a glimpse, something that God will do, can be enough to get you through it. You may not know how things will work out, and you may have to go through hard days, but what if God were to do something to give you a glimpse? Could it be enough when you hear the unimaginable? I think the text would say yes. That's why I've entitled our sermon, A Timely Glimpse of Jesus' Glory. A Timely Glimpse of Jesus' Glory. I want to look at this passage under four headings, and this will help kind of work through it. The first thing is the terrible news. The second point is God's timely glimpse. The third thing is true glory. And the final point will be a trustworthy foretaste. Terrible news. What do we mean when I say terrible news? Look, we've been out of Mark for three months. If you've been with our church, we've been in the Psalms for the summer. And so going back to Mark three months ago, look, I preached something and I don't remember my sermon three weeks ago, right? So me expecting you to remember where we were in Mark three months ago, that's kind of a long stretch. And so it's important to put Mark 9, this transfiguration of Jesus, in its context, which means we have to step back and say, how is it working in the gospel of Mark? So what's going on in Mark chapter 8? And you can you feel free to look at your Bibles. Feel free to kind of trust me here. I'm going to summarize what's happening in Mark 8. 
And Mark 8, it, it's, a, it's a really important chapter in Mark's gospel because Jesus asks a question to the disciples, who do people say that I am? And some say, hey, you're a prophet. Some say that you're John the Baptist. Some say that you are Elijah. Some say that you're a healer, right? They're saying all types of things about Jesus. And then Jesus asks a question to the disciples, well, who do you say that I am? And it's right there that Peter, who normally gets everything wrong, Peter gets something right. Peter actually says, you're the Christ. You're the son of God. You're the Messiah. You're the anointed one. And here's the thing. And Peter was absolutely right. That was one of those moments where Peter could see clearly. And the only reason he could see that was not because of flesh and blood, but because the spirit of God pulled the veil back and Peter could see Jesus for who he truly was. And here's the the irony of the passage. As soon as Peter confesses Jesus to be the Christ, you want to know what came out of Jesus's mouth right after that? Pay attention to it. Right after Jesus is told that he's the Christ, notice what it says in verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and the scribes. Did you catch that? So as soon as Peter confesses Jesus as the Christ, as soon as Peter is thinking that Jesus' kingdom is about to come in the fullness of its power, Jesus immediately and plainly starts to say, and I'm going to suffer, and I'm going to be killed, and I'm going to be betrayed. And it's at that point that Peter rebukes Jesus. I mean, he pulls Jesus aside and rebukes him and notice Jesus' response. He says, get behind me, Satan. You're setting your heart and mind on the things of man and not the things of the world. In other words, Jesus is seeing this crafty serpent speak through one of his disciples. And Peter is trying to get Jesus to not go to the cross and not to die. You're the Christ. Surely you don't have to go to the cross. And Jesus sees straight through it and says, this is Satan talking. Now, right after that, notice what else Jesus says. Look at what he says in verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with the disciples, he said, if anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Whoever would save his life will lose it. You hear that? That's terrible news. If you're a disciple, you've seen Jesus raise the dead. You've seen him feed thousands of people with little. You've seen him tell wind and nature to obey him and stop roaring. You've seen him heal diseases that no doctor could heal. And you know what? You're probably riding on on cloud nine. We're going to rise this cloud all the way to glory, and we're going to be at his right hand and his left hand, and nothing can come against us because he can even tell death to, to reverse itself. And then Jesus drops the bombshell. I'm going to die, and you're going to die by following me. How does that feel to hear that? It might feel like the Golden State Warriors, if you follow them, They already have won championships. 
And then they add Kevin Durant. And then they add Boogie Cousins. And if you're like me, I kind of penciled them in to win the NBA finals for the next three to five years. I actually thought they were going to do they were going to eclipse Jordan's era with the Bulls. And so I'm putting them in the championship every year for the next five years. And then the playoffs happen this year. And Boogie goes out in the first series. And then Kevin Durant has an injury with his Achilles and he sits out. And then he comes back and he tears his Achilles. And then Clay Thompson, one of the best shooters in the league, tries to dunk and he dunks it and he tears his ACL. And all of a sudden you're riding the Golden State hype. And then one thing after another, after another, after another. And then Kevin Durant leaves. You're riding cloud nine. And now you get terrible news that this team that you knew is not going to be a team anymore. You feel that? I heard you. <laughs> Appreciate you talking back to me, Doc. This is how they're feeling. They're on cloud nine. And then they get this terrible news. You're going to suffer. And I'm going to die. Now, why is it so hard to hear that? Because we want earthly glory, not suffering. We want earthly fame and popularity, not persecution. And what Jesus is doing, he is shattering their hope for earthly glory and earthly comfort and earthly ease. And this is hard. And so C.S. Lewis, he writes about this weight of glory. He says this longing for glory, it means to have a good report. It means to be accepted. It means to be acknowledged. It means to be welcomed into the heart of things. We can be left utterly and absolutely on the outside, repelled, exiled, estranged, and, and finally unspeakably ignored and forgotten. Or we can be called into the heart of things he says, we live every day on a razor edge between these two possibilities. I think he's tapping into this longing that we have as people to not want persecution, to not want to be unpopular, to not want hardship, to not want suffering. And so when Jesus says, if you follow me, you will suffer, it gets under us because we want human glory. And I think you see this carried out in the musical Hamilton. Now, look. I was not a fan of the Hamilton hype. One, I, I just, I didn't do well in history. And I'm gonna be really honest, I think I was asleep when they taught about Alexander Hamilton. Um, and musicals, I just, I just, I, I, I can't do it, right? I can't just sit there, right? And no offense if you're into the arts, but Hamilton has changed me. And it changed me because of Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda. He was on the Jimmy Fallon show and he was, I heard the hype about Hamilton, the music, musical. And I'm like, okay, I'm going to check this out. And so he gets on the scene and I'm thinking, okay, this is just some dude who's trying to hijack hip hop culture to make some money. But this dude is like a, a real student of hip hop. I mean, he went to performing art school. And so Jimmy was asking him questions like, why are you doing Hamilton first? And then why are you doing Hamilton with hip hop? And so he goes down this whole treatise of why hip hop is the perfect medium. 
He talks about rhyme scheme. He talks about in all the genres of music, hip hop and the number of words that rappers will rap in a given minute. He says you can take a lot of history and because hip, the tempo of hip hop is so fast, you can condense a lot of history into one song. And then if you have like a fire hook that can kind of make people remember it, you can actually take something that is alien and foreign, like the history of Alexander Hamilton, and you can lay a beat on it produced by Questlove and the Roots. And now you've got something that is killing Broadway. But if, so, there's a song on the Hamilton soundtrack, and the name of it is History Has Its Eyes on You. And this is George Washington. He's mentoring a young Alexander Hamilton. He says, history has its eyes on me. Let me tell you what I wish I'd known when I was young and dreamed of glory. You have no control who lives, who dies, who tells your story. I know that we can win. I know that greatness lies in you. But remember from here on in, that history has its eyes on you. I was younger now than you, I was younger than you are now when I was given my first command. I led my men straight in a massacre. I witnessed their deaths firsthand. I made every mistake and felt the shame rise in me. And even now I lie awake knowing that history has its eyes on me. Did you hear what he's saying to Hamilton? When I was young, I dreamed of glory, and that dream of glory made me so desire to be important and on the end and famous that it led me to lead my men into a straight massacre. And then he warns Alexander Hamilton, and he says, history has its eyes on you. And what you start to see in the, in the musical is this impulse to be gloried in, to be famous, to be great. And I actually think it's one of the reasons Alexander Hamilton was killed by Aaron Burr. The room where it happens, there's these things that happen behind closed doors. And Aaron Burr is asked, well, what do you want? And he says, I want to be in the room where it happens. And he is so isolated from all the major things happening that at the end of the movie, he takes Hamilton's life because he longed for glory and he didn't find it. Is that not a picture of you and I? We want to be remembered. We want to be known. We want to be important. We want to be on the end crowd. And so when Jesus drops a bomb that if you follow me, you're going to be persecuted, you're going to be marginalized, and you're not going to be on the end, that hits us as terrible news. Which leads us to our second point, a timely glimpse. It's important to note that of the 12 disciples, 
Judas killed himself, Bartholomew was beat with rods and beheaded, James was stoned and clubbed to death, Andrew was beat and crucified, Peter crucified upside down, Thomas was killed with a spear, James the son of Zebedee is killed in Acts chapter 12, Philip is crucified and, be, and was beaten and imprisoned, Matthew was killed with a spear, John was exiled and died of old age, and so for the record, Jesus ain't playing. For the record, everybody he's telling, if you follow me, you'll be persecuted. They really did die. Here's my question. Why stay around? If you tell me in Mark chapter 8, for me to follow you, I got to lose my life. I got to take up my cross that I'm going to have to die and suffer. Here's how if me on my worst day, Jesus gives this, this speech and I'm like, all right, Jesus, we good, bro. Right. I'm not I'm not choosing that. Right. Why did they stay? They hadn't seen the resurrection. They hadn't seen the crucifixion. Why stay? When your savior has just told you the most unimaginable news under the heavens, when he's just wrecked your life and what you thought your life would be, why stay around? I think it's no coincidence that on the heels of the bad news at the end of chapter 8, that the Father does something. Look at chapter 8, verse 38. Whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with his angels. Jesus speaks of his future glory at the end of time when he breaks into the sky with his legions of angels to judge the world. And it's going to be a glorious sight. He speaks of that in Mark chapter eight. And then it's as if the father is saying to the disciples or at least the three that get to go on the mountain, you don't have to wait to see his glory. The glory that you will see in the future, I'm going to show you right now. And I'm of the opinion that the transfiguration in Mark is not for Jesus. Did you notice Jesus' swag in Mark chapter 8? He rebukes Peter. He says, Satan, get behind me. You're not setting your heart or mind on the things of the Lord, but the things of men. Did you did you catch what he says? He says, I know I'm coming back and I'm coming black in the in the glory of my father with angels. I don't think you have a Jesus in Mark chapter eight who is struggling with his own crucifixion. It reads as if I know who I am. I know I'm the Christ. I'm glad you now know, but I already know. And I know I will die. I know I will be raised from the dead and I know I will come in glory. So why then is Mark 9 here? I think it's here not for Jesus. I think it's here for the disciples. They just had their world rocked. And the father says, I'm going to do something about it. And so notice in Mark chapter 9, verse 2, it says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John, and he led them up on a high mountain by themselves. So he takes three of the twelve. But why the after six days? I think that's Mark's way of saying whatever has happened in Mark 9, it is related to what happened six days prior. These two events events are not Unrelated. They're very much related. 
Secondly, look at what Jesus says in the first verse of chapter 9. Truly I say to you, there is some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of heaven after it comes with power. Did you notice that Jesus does take three up on a mountain and then those three see something they've never, ever seen before? And so in other words, I'm with a group of scholars who actually believe that the prophecy right there in 9-1 is fulfilled on the mountain. There are some there, not all, some, three of them. These three are going to see something beautiful, and Jesus shows them. And notice what it says in verse 2, Jesus was transfigured. It's really passive in, in the Greek, which means it happened to him. He didn't do it himself, but he was transfigured. Notice verse 4, it says Jesus, uh, it doesn't say that he caused Elijah and Moses to appear. No, they kind of show up. Notice that Mark doesn't even tell us what Moses and Elijah and Jesus are talking about. It's as if he's saying, hey, I want you to see them, but don't focus on what, what they're talking about. I want you to focus on their presence. And then notice verse 7, a cloud overshadowed them. And when it speaks about them, I think he's talking about all of them. And a voice came out of the cloud and said, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. This isn't the first time we've heard a voice from heaven in Mark's gospel. Remember the first time we heard the voice from heaven in Mark's gospel? It was in Mark chapter 1 when Jesus was being baptized. And in Mark 1, the voice said, you are my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. But did you notice that is not what the voice says here? In Mark 1, the voice was he from heaven was for Jesus. You're my son. I love you. Did you notice what the words that came from the voice in Mark 8 says? It says, this is my beloved son. Listen to him. In other words, in Mark 8, the father isn't talking to Jesus. He was talking to Jesus in Mark 1. In Mark 8, he's talking about Jesus to everyone there on the mountain. He's telling them, listen to this one, my beloved son. I think this is for the disciples I think the Father is showing us that, that he knows how hard it is to hear the news that your life may not end up like you think it will. I think he knows how hard to hear the news that if you follow him, get ready to have him take the helm and you will go through seasons where you're on the outside. You will go through seasons where you're persecuted. You will go through seasons where your world is falling apart. And here is what you see the father doing. The father is timely. He is timely with showing up and ministering to his disciples who are struggling with their lives. In other words, do you believe that this is true for the father now? 
that you can be going through the worst thing under the heavens. But do you believe that your father delights in showing up and giving you the thumbs up and saying, baby girl, it's going to be all right. I'm with you. Do you believe when everything is falling apart that your father can show up and just give you a little glimpse, a little something to let you know that you have not forsaken me, you have not abandoned me, but that you are still with me? And sometimes that might come in the form of an email from someone who speaks an encouraging word. Or a text from someone when it feels like the world is against you and you're doubting certain things and someone moved by the Spirit sends something that's encouraging. It can be when you're in your own time with the Lord and you can barely read the Bible because of the tears and all of a sudden something in Scripture captures your attention and you're trying to read through this whole narrative and then one little phrase, it's like the Spirit is saying, no, baby, rest right there. Do you believe that your father does this, that he takes on a ministry of being timely and showing up in the midst of the hard stuff? I think that's how Mark 9 is functioning. They have just gotten their worlds rocked. And the father says, let me show you something. Let me show you a little something. And this little something I'm going to show you, it's going to be sufficient. It's going to get you through. It's going to make the unimaginable bearable. So what does the father show them in this timely fashion? I think he shows them our third point, true glory. If suffering for the sake of the gospel crushes us because it crushes our hopes for earthly glory, what will enable us to endure those times when we have to suffer? It's only when we see what true glory is and where we find it. C.S. Lewis, he writes, and, and I edited his quote the first time I read it, but he pushes us in this area. He says, what if our deepest longings for earthly glory serve as pointers to something else? What if our deepest longing for glory is not just to be remembered or to have weight with people, or to be on the end with people, or to endure forever in the eyes of people, or to be praised by people, or to be loved by a spouse, or to be known by the next generation of people, or to be important in the eyes of the world. Here's what Lewis says. He says, the glory we really want, our deepest desire, is for the redeemed soul to learn that she has pleased him whom she was created to please, we long to please God, to be a real ingredient in the divine happiness, to be loved by God, not merely pitied, but delighted in as an artist delights in her work. Glory means for us then a good report with God, acceptance with God, acknowledgement by God, and welcome into the heart of things with God. I think what C.S. Lewis is saying that before the fall, it was enough to want to be remembered, to want to be known, to want to be on the end. And all that mattered was his voice, his approval. But because of the fall, that desire is still there. 
But now it's pushed out towards other things. And now when we are unpopular in the eyes of the world or hurt in the eyes of the world, it does more than hurt us. It completely crushes us, but the longing for glory is there. It's just misplaced. And so what C.S. Lewis is saying, what we really, really want is to be known, loved, accepted, and approved by God. And when we're known, loved, accepted, and approved by God, it doesn't matter what people do to us over here. They don't crush us because we're uplifted by him and known by him. And so the solution or the remedy in our suffering and persecution is to know that whatever people take away, whatever it hurts, he knows us. He will not forget us. And I think that's what you start to see in the passage. That one of the reasons, I think, that three disciples get to go up the mountain and in the cloud and hear the voice of God is because they were made to dwell there. You remember in Genesis at the beginning when God walked with Adam and Eve and he talked with them? Do you remember that? How life used to be? where God walked and talked to them as, as friends when they were near, when they could see him and talk with him and know him. I think this is image on the mountain. This is image on the mountain that Peter and James and John, they get to come up, they get to come up and higher in, and they get to hear the voice of God. I don't think it's a coincidence. How does Peter respond? He's like, Lord, can I make a tent? Can I make a tent? Can we bottle this up? Can I make a tip for, for you and you and you? It's good, like good for us to be here. I know we look at that like, Peter, why? And I'm like, you know what? It is good. It's good to be near God. It's good to be in his presence. It's good to hear his voice. It's good to see him. Your heart was made for that. It's good to have his approval. And I think this is what's happening in the passage. Have you ever felt that, that every crowd you want to be in, every ounce of well done you desire, every fear you have of being forgotten points to a desire for glory that only God can give you? What you long for beneath all of that is to be home with your maker. That's what we're after. I think these three men are representatives for us all. This is what God wants for us all to be near. But then there's a problem. The text reads as if Peter felt joy and then terror at the same time. Notice what Mark says, for Peter did not know what to say, for they were terrified. If y'all watch like Looney Tunes and Wile E. Coyote and Roadrunner, there are plenty of scenes, but there's one that I have in my memory when the roadrunner is kind of running, like he's running from the coyote, like, and he kind of goes off a cliff and he keeps on running on air and it, he just kind of goes. 
And then the coyote is like coming behind him, trying to catch him. And he almost has him. He almost has him. And he realizes like he's walking on air, too. And it looks like he's about to catch the, the, the road runner. And then the, the frame freezes. Because in the cartoon, only the road runner can run on air. And the coyote does what? He starts to drop. But it's that moment right there in the, where the frame freezes where you start to see, all right, bro, this ain't good. You're not going to catch him. I think this is kind of what's going on in the passage. Peter and the disciples, they're up. They're in. They're in communion with God. They're in the cloud. And all of a sudden, Peter says, wait a minute, I'm in the cloud. And this ain't good. I'm not supposed to be in the cloud. Why is Peter afraid? Because when you go back and read Exodus 19, when God called Moses up the mountain into the cloud, there's thunder and lightning. And God has to tell Moses over and over again, hey, bro, you got to go warn them. I don't want no animal or no foot to touch the foot of the mountain, because if anybody touches the foot of the mountain, then they're dead. And then God says, well, hey, bring the priest up. He says, God, you just told me if anybody else touches the mountain and comes into the cloud, they die. Well, bring Aaron, but not the rest. All of a sudden, when you start to see this cloud in the Old Testament, it's doom. You come into it and you die unless God invites you in it. And so when Peter is terrified, I get it because he knows I shouldn't be here. It's over with. I'm done. I'm about to fall dead right here on the mountain. And then something beautiful happens, right? Jesus glows. And this isn't Moses reflecting the glory of the Lord. This is light coming from the one who is the radiance and glory of God. And all of a sudden, Peter is afraid because he shouldn't be there. And here's the here's question. If we're after being in and accepted and approved by God, but getting in it means death, the question that we have to ask is, where do we get the right to stand in the presence of a holy God? How do we get the glory the acceptance, the approval, the being on the end that we know our hearts were made for, but that simultaneously is costly. We need a better Moses. We need someone, as the author of Hebrews says, who is the radiance of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. We need someone to mediate that relationship. There's a reason that Peter sees Elijah and Moses for a moment. And then did you, did you notice what the Bible says? They looked up and they were gone. They vanished. It's as if the father is saying, you won't get glory from the prophets. You won't get glory from Moses. The only one who can give you this acceptance and approval that your heart was made for is Jesus. And he will do it at the cost of his own life. That if you think about the image of the garden, that there was angels put at the garden with flaming swords. And the image there is if you try to get back into the garden, into the presence of the Lord, Somebody's got to die. 
And we believe that Jesus Christ, who is very God of very God, who is the exact imprint of God's nature, who is himself glorious, we believe that he took on flesh. And what you see in Mark is his divinity is masked in his humanity, but it is very God of very God. And then he would go to a cross and he who who is old and is himself glorious would then go on a cross and be crucified and killed that he might bring us who deserve wrath that he might endow us with glory, that we might now be accepted and approved and on the end with the Father, that the Father might say of us, you are my son, you are my daughter with whom I am well pleased, and this is yours because of my son who I am well pleased. Now answer this question. How does that change your suffering? To know that your father says, I love you and you're mine and I'm never leaving you and I'm never forsaking you and they may injure the body, but they cannot take you from me. How does that make these light and momentary afflictions feel when you know you have the approval of your king? Doesn't it make it easier? to endure the disapproval of people. That's what the Father is doing. I'm bringing you further in and further up, and they may destroy you, but you got to know you've been accepted through the person and work of Jesus. That's ours. The last thing we see in the text is a trustworthy foretaste. Have you ever, has it ever crossed your mind why Elijah and Moses are here? I think on the one hand, the law and the prophets find their fulfillment in Jesus. But I think there's more than fulfillment on this mountain. I think foretaste is on this mountain. What do we know about Elijah? He was the prophet that didn't die. The Lord simply took him up and he was no more. What do we know about Moses? That if there were a race that you were running and the finish line is that step, Moses is running, is running, is running, and then he trips up like right before he crosses the finish line. You do know that Moses, who led them out of Egypt, didn't even lead them into the promised land. The Lord says, say to a rock, and Moses struck the rock. And because Moses responded out of his anger, the Lord says, you will not enter the land. And if you were reading the Bible, you would think that what a failure. Like, dude, how did you blow it like that? How did you, bringing them into the land, not yourself get to go into the land? You would think that the last time we see Moses is when the Lord buries him outside of the promised land. And here is what you see in the passage. Moses is right there on the mountain. And you know what? He is in the land. 
geographically, he's standing in the land, and by faith, he is in Jesus. It's as if God is saying, this is the foretaste for you, Christian. It doesn't matter how you finish. You might stumble, you might fall, but if you are in me, I promise you, I will raise you up, and you will come home with me forever. That's good news, right? Elijah didn't die. He just wasn't. And now we see him here. He didn't just go into oblivion. No, he went with God and God shows us there. Isn't that true for us? That even though we die and it may be at the hands of persecution, here as we start to see Elijah kind of coming back. Is that not a promise to us now? It's a foretaste. Jesus will bring you home. He will raise you from the dead. You are his now and forever. Doesn't that make suffering a little easier? C.S. Lewis says, at this present, we are on the outside of the world. It feels as if we're on the wrong side of the door. But all the leaves of the New Testament are rustling with the rumor that this will not always be so. Someday, God willing, no matter what we endure in this life, we shall get home. You'll get home. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We bless you. We thank you for your word. Father, we pray for those who are suffering and pray that you would use our time to give them a glimpse of what you've done. Father, we have something greater than the glimpse that the disciples got. We have more of the story. We see that Jesus was crucified, was buried, died, was raised, and is ascended at your right hand. Father, that's a foretaste of what is true for us. Though we carry crosses, though we endure hardships in this life, the gospel says to us, you will bring us home. You've done it for Jesus. You'll do it for your people. Might we rest and trust in you. For Christ's sake, amen.